G'day everyone, I'm Luke Tipple. Welcome to The Daily Bite. Today we're diving into the Shark Week show, Ninja Sharks 2, Mutant Rising, with the stars, our guests, marine biologist Dr. Craig O'Connell and Madeline Marins. We're going to be exploring the nearshore waters of New York and the ghostly shipwrecks off the coast of North Carolina. Millions of years of mutation and evolution have created the perfect predators. It's like they developed the ultimate superpower. For years, scientists have been tracking them, and with recent breakthroughs, are closer than ever to discovering their secrets. Shark trackers are plunging into the shadows. And risking their lives. I gotta get out of here. I don't think this is gonna work. To unmask these ninjas of the shark world. Uh, Craig, Madeline, welcome to the Daily Bite. Thank you so much. Hey, for thanks for having us. Yeah, we're very welcome. Um, excited to have both of you here. Excited to see the show Ninja Sharks. Um, Craig, perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and what your research is. Uh, well, uh, I am Dr. Craig O'Connell. I am an executive director from OC's Conservation Foundation, and my research primarily focuses on shark behavior and I specifically am starting to target thresher sharks because they're such an impressive animal. It's like my new passion. Um, they're incredibly hard to find, and so I'm trying to do as much as I possibly can to learn as much as I possibly can about them. And Madeline, you, uh, you definitely win the background award um, for all these interviews so far. You're in a pretty cool spot. Um, who are you? What are you doing? What's your research? Hey, guys. Uh, my name is Madeline Marins. I work at the North Carolina Aquarium at Fort Fisher. So behind me, you see one of our cool tanks. Um, I'm behind the scenes at Shark Cove right now. So we've got some fishy friends behind me. Um, I'm a researcher here at the North Carolina Aquariums. I'm studying sand tiger sharks off the coast of North Carolina. We see them here in groups of over 100 sharks um, through certain times of the year. And we're really interested in what these sharks are doing here off of our coast, particularly at shipwrecks that we see here. Yeah, that, uh, that footage is absolutely incredible. We're going to get to that in a minute. Um, but since time is limited, I want to dive right into Ninja Sharks because we've got some pretty amazing footage coming up. So, Craig, first of all, we've got a clip of you putting it all on the line. Getting a little spooky, Tiff. The light's getting pretty low. I just saw the silhouette of a shark out there. The second blue! Another one back there. I have personally seen blue sharks hunting in packs, circling and herding prey before they swoop in for the kill. So I get a little bit on edge when I see a bunch of blue sharks all around us at once. I gotta get out of here. I don't think this is gonna work. So Craig, you're in low light, you're looking for threshers, suddenly you get mobbed by blue sharks. What was going through your mind at that point in time? Well, the thing is, is we are trying to find this new non-invasive way to put tags on thresher sharks. They get really stressed out, so we didn't, we didn't want to catch them. So we came up with this brilliant idea to go out there and chum the waters and hopefully try and free dive down and put a camera and a tag in these sharks. And, you know, the light was getting low. Things weren't working out. And before we knew it, we were completely surrounded by these blue sharks. And it was getting really uncomfortable out there. I was losing light. You could barely see them. You wouldn't see them until the last second. They're coming from every direction. And sometimes they were bumping your legs, so they'd surprise you. They'd come out of nowhere. 
Uh, so it was, I was at the point where we had to call the dive. I saw that this technique wasn't going to work, but I mean, it was exhilarating. It was amazing. Blue sharks are absolutely beautiful animals. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Where were you? So we are at, we are at this special reef about seven miles from Montauk. And the thing that makes it so special is it's a very small reef. And during two weeks, every single year, it's absolutely mobbed by thresher sharks you can go there and you could see thresher sharks jumping out of the water swimming around and then all of a sudden at the end of that two weeks they completely disappear so yeah just off the coast of new york we have blue sharks we have thresher sharks great whites it's a really special location so talking about the threshers because i've actually always been fascinated by thresher sharks it's like one of the few sharks that i've, I've yet to see in the wild um You've got them in your backyard and you've only got them from a couple of weeks. Why are they there? And, you know, why do you want to work with them? So that was the whole point of our expedition. Um, you know, I'm fishing in my own backyard. I have these massive sharks in my own backyard. And these thresher sharks are showing up in massive numbers for these two weeks and then they disappear. So the goal was to figure out why. So we use a bunch of different technologies. And eventually at the very end, we figured it out. The temperature is just right. And there's these massive bait balls, the size of football fields coming over that reef. And when they come over that reef, it's like an underwater buffet for these thresher sharks. They're feasting on it. But then at the end of that two weeks, the temperature starts to change. The bait seems to disperse a little bit. And so do the thresher sharks. So you did manage to eventually get an acoustic tag on. Um, how many acoustic tags are currently, or tags in general, are on thresher sharks right now that you're responsible for? So right now, we only have one acoustic and one satellite tag because uh, that was really the beginning of the research. Now we're going to continue it this summer. The unfortunate thing with the satellite tag, we're still trying to figure it out, but that particular thresher shark that we caught uh, wound up going all the way to Block Island and made its way on land. So we don't necessarily know if that animal was actually captured by a fisherman and and killed. I mean, it is a highly prized fish. People like to eat thresher sharks, and it's a very a big possibility that it was captured and killed. So it's a little disappointing. Yeah, I, I know what that feels like. Uh, we did a we did a study out in uh, Marshall Islands where I put out uh, eighteen tags on reef sharks, trying to prove like inter island movements uh, for these animals, and uh, every single one of them, except two of them, uh, within a month of us being there showed like they actually showed some inner island movement and it was fairly like normal swimming speed and everything like that and then they pretty much went straight line all the way to indonesia We're like oh okay fishing fishing fleets just came in and wiped them out it's heartbreaking when you put all that work into tagging and you just see them go away but obviously that that data might be corrupted but what is your what is your best guess like where are they coming from where are they going are they just following the warm water as it moves down so it's, it's difficult to say because we have a lot more work to do and it's a very understudied uh, species of shark. I mean, you think about great whites, there's so many tags out on great whites. Everyone loves great whites, but I feel like we kind of miss out on these awesome other shark species, the threshers, the sand tiger sharks. And so um, I think we need to do a lot more work. But if I had to guess, I think these sharks are following these, this particular water temperature. They make their way up to Massachusetts. And then they make their way back down south. There's a lot of them down in North Carolina during particular times of the year, especially the winter time. So they're just seasonal residents in Montauk, and then they move on. Well, since you mentioned sand tiger, they're like one of my favorite sharks, actually. I'd love to talk about uh, Madeline's spot in the show because Madeline has some of the most incredible footage I've seen 
of sand tigers on wrecks. Yeah, thanks. Um, so North Carolina coast is world renowned for its diving. We are known as the graveyard of the Atlantic. We have shipwrecks that wrecked over 200 years ago during the Civil War up to World War II. So some of these shipwrecks have been there for over 200 years. And over time, encrusting organisms have settled um, like barnacles and sponges and have become like their own ecosystem oasis where these really productive habitats are um, happening, where you have small fish settling, and then you have your larger predators coming in like your sharks. So people come from all over the world to dive off the North Carolina coast and can see these large aggregations of sand tiger sharks swimming and hovering over these shipwrecks. But it's really been fascinating to researchers over time. We're thinking, what are these sharks doing here on these wrecks? They're highly migratory. We can see sand tiger sharks um, through past studies go all the way up to New Jersey. There's nursery habitats north of Cape Cod. Um, they're highly migratory though, and they will come back down to southern waters um, in the fall and winter. And some of them are seasonal residents. So they may be staying in North Carolina for long periods of time, but we don't know why. So the focus of my study is what are these sand tiger sharks doing off of our coast? Um, I'm particularly looking at mature females as we think this might be an important reproductive habitat for these sharks. Well, that's fascinating. So I actually didn't know that they weren't resident in that area. So you're saying that some of them will hang out on wrecks or at least in the area year round. Is there, obviously you said you're still trying to figure that out, but is there any preliminary idea? Like is it, is it sex? Is it size? Age? Yeah, exactly. That's a great question. So we do, as they are highly migratory, you know, they will make spring and summer migrations up to places like Delaware Bay. Um, and then in the fall and winter, they'll return south to southern waters from North Carolina to Florida. And divers anecdotally see sand tiger sharks from spring to fall. And we do see mixed sex. Interestingly, we do see some females with scarring in the spring and summer months. So there might be mating occurring here, um, but there hasn't been the coverage from um, acoustic telemetry studies in North Carolina. We know that it's a pit stop, but we don't know who these seasonal resident sharks are. Interesting. So you have the uh, the enviable job of actually getting to go and dive with these guys. Put me in the water with you because I was, I was watching this footage and, and the show is amazing. Um, when you're in the water, it's so clear, it's pretty, and I'm a huge wreck geek. So I love seeing that. And then you see a couple sand tigers, then you look up and there's a couple shots that blew my mind where there's probably 60 to 100 individuals just kind of hovering there. Put me in the water with you guys. What's that experience like? Absolutely. So most of our days are not like that. A lot of times when we're diving, we're putting down receiver equipment that detect these tagged individuals. We're working in visibility of less than one foot and really strong currents and really cold water. But during the summer and fall months, you get really clear water um, right off the coast of Cape Lookout. And you're on these shipwrecks, some of them from World War II. So these big U-boats, which were um, German submarines that were sunk right off of the coast. Um, and you go down and there's just a group of, or an aggregation of 50 to 100 sharks just hovering almost motionless. Um, and then these bait fish swimming around. It's really just like another world. And it's just so awesome to be in their element and share that space with them. So how often are you on one of those, you know, 
dark, cold, low visibility dives, and you're just swimming along and you know bumping into sand tigers. Is that <laughs> happening very often? <laughs> That did actually happen one time. Um, I was going down with my dive safety officer and we could see each other. It was kind of murky. Um, we had about 10 feet of visibility and we're going down the line um, about to um, hit the wreck. And yeah, I see that there was a juvenile sand tiger shark swimming up underneath him, almost nosing up, checking him out. And I was like, check it out, shark, shark. And he actually bumped into him and the shark swam away and we were okay. <laughs> As a good result. We were, uh, I was watching the show and it threw me back to um, some work that I did with uh, Sawfish. So we were on a you know deep shipwreck and it was for a Shark Week show. Um, but we were tipped off that the sawfish might be you know semi-resident or they might be using it as a sort of mating area or at least a refuge. Um, so if, And I did see some footage of about half a dozen individuals. So I thought we might have a pretty good chance to go and, and find sawfish on this wreck. Um, but the visibility was terrible. The current was terrible. And there was like one dive where I'm zooming around on a on a scooter, you know, doing four knots underwater. And the visibility was shocking. It's like 230 feet. And I was able to see maybe six feet in front of me. And I did have this thought in my mind, like I'm zooming around way too fast, way too deep. And I can't see anything. I'm trying to find a 15 foot animal with a, a sword for a nose whose instinct is to go like this. When, when it's, you know, in defense. And I'm thinking, this is a really, really dumb idea. <laughs> but I, I, I guess we found it. But um, the, the mechanism for, um, for buoyancy in the sand tigers is, is really, really interesting. Can you explain that for me? Absolutely. So sand tiger sharks are unique in that they can actually go up to the surface and they'll gulp air and keep that air in their stomach that acts like a flotation device. So we'll see them go up, gulp air, and come down, and then they can control how much air they want in their stomach, and they'll release air bubbles. It kind of looks like a shark burp. Um, so if you're lucky enough and you see a sand tiger shark scene releasing some air, that's them controlling their buoyancy. Um, they lack a swim bladder, um, like a bony fish do, but they do have really large livers, um, which are really rich in oil, which helps them also float. But this also extra flotation device lets them hover almost motionless and they can use the current to kind of position themselves where they're hovering over the wrecks. And we don't really know why they're doing this. They could be seeking prey. Um, they are known to aggregate and this may be a social um, behavior. So these uh, wrecks are really productive habitats. So they may be a great prey resource, but we think that there may be a behavioral component. This may be a great area um, where they're getting together and mating. Also, these mature females may be partially segregating themselves from the population where the rest of the population is going up to Delaware Bay in the summer. We'll, we are still seeing um, mature females and we have identified pregnant females that are staying on these wrecks through the summer, fall and winter. So we, this may be an important reproductive and birthing habitat for sand tiger sharks. Do, uh, with your best guess, do you actually think they're giving birth and pupping on the wreck or is it just a safe place for them to be until they move somewhere else? 
That's a great question and something that we are trying to figure out. Um, like we were talking about with really low visibility, it's really hard for us to go down and directly observe this behavior happening. Um, with the advent of technologies like acoustic telemetry, you know, we can tag these individuals, but they have to be in range of these receivers that tag that equipment. And then you have satellite tags, which are great, um, but sometimes you are dealing with tag loss or, um, you know, malfunction of the equipment. Um, so we are starting out looking at these shipwrecks, um, and we are, um, with, all, um, with onboard ultrasounds, we're actually able to identify pregnant females and kind of gauge how far along she is. So sand tiger sharks have a really long um, gestation period of like nine to 12 months. Um, but we can kind of say, okay, she's about four to five months in and then look at her detection data and say, okay, she you know, stayed in North Carolina or she moved a little bit inshore or offshore. Um, so those are some of the next questions I think we're going to look at. That's amazing. So. Uh, talking about like footage from this show, uh, Craig, you guys put together a rig that captured some of the most incredible behavioral footage from a thresher that I think has ever been filmed. Let's check that out. Craig employs a towable camera rig to draw them in. It's got a camera here. We're going to attach bait to each one of these arms. And if these sharks are really here to feed, we should get a strike on this. Mackerel's rigged and ready. I dropped that baby in. I got the port engine going. You have a read on the video? Yeah, we can see it. Looks good. Oh, oh get, get over here. Let it go, let it go, let it go. Get over here, get over here. Oh, oh my God, you Swear to God, we got what we wanted. Holy, holy, what? Oh my God! It's a thresher, just yards away from their boat, on the hunt for prey. Hit it, hit it. The shark eyes up its prey, locks on target, then moves in for the kill. It's in slide with the tail! The motion is so fast, it's over in one frame of video. One thirtieth of a second. But Craig spots the blade-like tail slicing across the bottom of the screen. A ninja on the hunt for food. What oh, wow. Oh, my God. Crushed it. Slapped it with its tail. Look and at that. Crushed it. What's that? Super graceful. The tail moved like a ribbon. Wow. And then whammo. Sheer power. So, Craig, not only did you get a fin cam on a thresher shark during this show, you also got footage of a thresher shark actually predating on your toe cam. Um, what made you think that that would work to start with? To be honest, we didn't necessarily know what was going to work when we were out there. We just had a bunch of different technologies to try and figure out what in the world these thresher sharks were doing. So we did the fin cam. We got some groundbreaking footage. No one's ever done that before. We were thrilled that we even recovered the fin cam because it's like finding a needle in a haystack, this tiny little camera system floating in the middle of the ocean. So we got that back. We were super excited. And then I had this trolling camera and I was like, you know, this has worked in places like South Africa where I've towed a tuna and a great white shark would come out from absolutely nowhere and swallow up that whole tuna. And to me, it was an indication that, you know, if sharks are feeding on this, it's an indication that they're motivated to feed in this general area. 
And so I decided, you know, guys, why don't we, you know, tow this troll probe behind the boat, put a bunch of fish around to make it look like a school of fish. And if the threshers are there and motivated to feed, we should get a strike. And the crazy thing about it is that within just about five minutes of putting it down, we had the live feed running and all this, a thresher shark showed up. And it was a massive thresher shark. It was like 12 to 15 feet. And you could see it was following it. It was checking it out. It was very curious. It was using its vision to try and determine what it was. And then at the last second, it accelerated towards the troll pro, the trolling camera. It took a dive down and we we're like, oh, we lost it. But then you saw the tail take a swipe at the bait. And to me, it was the most incredible thing. We saw these massive schools of bait. Now we got that visual evidence of a predation and we figured out why these sharks were at that reef. So uh, to me, it was groundbreaking. I could not believe it. <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly looked like a pretty powerful moment for you because you're dealing with animals that aren't there that often. They're pretty mysterious and you guys managed to actually capture that on film. It, it's, it's super rare and I was stoked for you when you got it. Um, when you brought the, the mackerel back up, uh, first of all, I wanted to ask you, how fast were you trolling at? We, were, we weren't uh, trolling it very fast. We, we were moving right around five knots. Um, if we went too fast with that trolling camera system, it would start spinning and it would make everything look unnatural. And so basically, we just towed it five knots. We felt at that speed, the fish were, were swimming perfectly. Everything was just right, and it paid off. Yeah, I was, I was curious about that because um, the way that they attack you know, they're, they're swimming, swimming, swimming. They almost have to come to kind of a stop before they whip their body around and, and use their tail as that whip. So I'm wondering, like, is there, there has to be some type of limiting speed that they can't uh, go after some type of prey because they'd simply outswim them by the time they've made that turn, right? Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. I think there's an optimal speed and that's something we learn in fishing in general. You know, when you're trolling for certain types of fish, either troll really fast for things like wahoo or you troll a little bit slower. I think it, it same thing applies for the thresher sharks. The only thing is I've, I've tried multiple other times to tow through that area at that same exact speed, and we haven't had any luck, so I'm really grateful it happened when the camera was there. <laughs> yeah, which is why you were super stoked when it happened. So when, when you brought the mackerel up, I mean, it looked like uh, you could almost see the indentation from when the tail hit it. It was, it was pretty much pulverized. Its ribs were all kind of blown apart. Um, it, was that very indicative of the attack? Was that super lucky? Is that what they always do? You know, I've, I've seen a lot of uh, thresher predations uh, in places like the Philippines. And, and you could see that they go through their tails moving 30 to 40 miles an hour. You know, that shark stops, it whips its tail. It's like that massive weapon and it stuns its prey. And its prey will slowly sink down to the sea floor. And that's when the thresher shark comes in and feeds. Um, so when we actually looked at the evidence of, of the, the tail, the whipping of the tail, um, it made perfect sense. I mean, it completely turned that mackerel into a pancake and it shows the power behind the thresher shark's tail. You don't want to get hit by it. Uh, when, I, uh, when I first started tagging uh, whale sharks, I was, you know, trying to get used to their, their movements and everything like that. And, uh, and one time I just got in the wrong place at the wrong time after tagging and it kind of took off. Um, but I got smacked by the tail and the tail was like, you know, 10 feet high and, you know, got hit by the caudal peduncle, just went smack straight in my ribs and knocked my mask off and almost knocked my rag out, kind of, kind of threw me for a loop there. And before that I was thinking, you know, that's probably one of the worst tails to get hit by. And then I saw this thresher. I thought, yeah, I don't want to get hit by that either. <laughs> Do you, I know it's super unlikely, but 
if a person was to get smacked by that, what kind of damage do you think it'd do? Well, it happened on our shoot. That's the thing. So um, we <laughs> okay, were so what? <laughs> yeah. we were we were pulling in a thresher, and it was our first one of of the whole expedition. It took a couple of days to get them. We we're super excited, and um, my assistant Caroline was you know getting ready to get the tail so we can get a, a you know the rope around the tail, secure the shark, and do all that stuff. And um, she. I was pulling the shark and as she reached over the tail, the thresher decided to swim really fast and the tail hit her square in the forehead. And it made this sound that was just incredible. It was like the, the perfect slap. And I looked over at her and like her eyes, she was stunned. She was completely shocked. Like it was, a, it was like severe trauma. And uh, I had to grab her so she didn't fall in the water because she almost got knocked out by the tail of a thresher shark. But I've heard of, Many other people getting hit by the tails of threshers when they were fishing and it broke their ribs. So it's not anything you want to mess with. And I went diving with them down in the Philippines and I got a little close. Now, these are pelagic threshers in the Philippines. The ones we work with in New York are common threshers. Um, I got a little bit close to this pelagic thresher and at the last second it whipped its tail and you could feel the water just move away and, and push against your body. So they're very, very powerful animals. They're underrated and they're just absolutely incredible predators. Now, you mentioned before that you wanted to be very careful about um, not stressing them too much, I guess, and you didn't want to have to catch them on uh, hook and line. Um, how fragile are they and how, uh, how much do they tolerate, you know, getting roped up and tagged and stuff like that? Yeah, so with a lot of shark species, um, a thresher shark is, is a common thresher shark is a, a ram ventilator. So it needs to keep swimming in order to breathe. And what we've noticed is that if you handle these sharks for too long, let's say if you, you have them on the fishing line for too long and they're fighting for a couple hours, that animal might look really healthy when you decide to release it because um, it's going to swim off. But what people don't recognize is sometimes those animals swim off and then they'll get exhausted and sink right down to the bottom. And so you might think you're doing a good thing by releasing it, but inevitably that shark is going to die. So what we like to do when we do our research with basically any shark in general is we limit our handling time to two to three minutes um, because we feel like after that time, you start to see the stomach of the animal get a little bit red, which is an indication that it's getting stressed out. So we get our samples, we put tags in it, we release it. The animals have thus far been very healthy. We haven't had any mortality. Um, but yeah, you have to be very careful when you're working with sharks. They're sensitive animals. Yeah. Now, kind of uh, opening this up to a little bit, both of you here, but you both have the unique experience of living in highly productive waters. You've got lots and lots of shark species. Uh, you've got lots of tourists, lots of fishing activity. Uh, Madeline, perhaps we start with you. What are, the, what are the challenges out there in working with sharks and especially with tagging and stuff like that where you are dealing with places that have people fishing, perhaps taking animals or perhaps being scared by sharks? Um, what are the challenges you face out there? Right. Um, well, like any field work, um, you really have to be reliant on really good conditions. Sometimes we have to go pretty far out, um, out offshore to get to these shipwrecks. Um, because we're called the graveyard of the Atlantic, that's by no mistake. That's because we're right off of, um, we have, you know, the continental shelf is right there and the Cape Lookout and Cape Fear jut out right into those um, slopes. So, you know, we have really treacherous water sometimes. So, you know, you have to make sure we have a really slick, calm day. Um, we're working over the side of the boat. 
Um, and so interestingly, um, we started out with long lining to tag these animals, but sand tiger sharks are quite lazy. So we actually had to, with some trial and error, we actually went to using some really heavy duty rod and reel gear to get these animals up. And unless you like bonk these sand tiger sharks on the head with food, they're actually not gonna come off of the wreck um, to get food. So we had to really tailor and make sure that we were um, going to a wreck with you know, um, a lot of animals on there at the day. We actually really um, rely on communication with our fishermen and um, our wreck divers. So people like, you know, we're huge in ecotourism and we actually have started a citizen science program where people can go down and take pictures of tiger shark and they have spot patterns on their side that are um, unique to that animal like a fingerprint so we can actually answer some questions about seasonal residency um, and individuals that are um, coming back to the same site um, year after year or season after season um, and also fishermen also understand the importance of sharks you know as top predators they help keep you know, fish populations in balance um, and, you know, promote a healthy ecosystem. And they realize that sharks are important and, you know, we need to protect these critical habitats that are important for their feeding and growing and reproducing. Um, and yeah, as a coastal shark, sand tiger sharks face a lot of um, problems and need these protections, um, you know, from habitat loss and pollution and degradation and overfishing. Um, yeah, sand tiger sharks have one of the lowest reproductive outputs of any shark or ray species. You know, it takes a really long time for these sharks to mature, and they're only giving birth to one or two pups every other year. So a sand tiger shark female, you know, gestates um, and gives birth after nine to 12 months, and then she takes a resting year because of how energetically expensive that was. Um, so she's not giving birth to a lot of pups, so even minimal fishing pressure can be really detrimental to these um, amazing creatures. Yeah. And the wrecks that they tend to hang out on uh, are, are super productive areas. And they're, you know, divers love them because they're easy to find lots and lots of different species. Um, I'm curious about the numbers of sand tiger sharks there, though. Are they out competing all the other big predators? I don't think so. I think there is a bit of a hierarchy. I think that they are the top predator on those wrecks, but our acoustic receivers are picking up a lot of other shark species too. Um, we've caught really large tiger sharks um, and adult um, sandbars and dusky sharks. Um, and, um, you know, we, the North Carolina coast sees upwards of 60 shark species. Um, what I think is that these larger predators um, and white sharks too are found um, off our coast in some months. I think they're hanging off the wrecks. I think they're actually more shy than these sand tigers are to divers. Um, so divers aren't seeing these tigers and white sharks, but they're there. They're just hanging out in the distance. So we've, we've talked a little bit about, um, you know, sharks and their movements up and down your coastline. Craig, with so many shark species there, is it fairly regular that you're seeing migrations go through? Uh, it's it's kind of like clockwork with some of these animals, right? Yeah, I think um, Montauk, especially in New York, is like a shark superhighway. And during different times of year, we're seeing different species moving through. You know, initially it starts out um, with the adult white sharks that are making their way from Florida. And then they come past Montauk and they go up to Cape to the Cape to go feed on all those seals. 
Um, and then as the water is warm, we see a lot of those species that Madeline's seeing down in North Carolina, the duskies, the sandbars. We even get really large tiger sharks. And then there's a spot just offshore of Montauk where we see species like whale sharks. And like whoever thought you'd see this massive tropical species off of New York. Um, so it's a really special location. Um, it's very productive. There's an abundance of prey. And uh, I'm grateful it's my own backyard because I can go out there and do research on so many different species. But at some level, it must be a little frustrating though, right? Because you're, you're thinking, okay, I want to put out more tags on threshers, but I've only got two weeks for it to happen and the weather sucks. Like how much pressure does that put on you as a, as, as a doctor trying to do your research? There's so much pressure and, and you're exactly right. Like the weather and, and Madeline was saying the same thing. You know, we're going out relatively far in, in Montauk and you got to rely on having relatively good weather to go out and do this work. Because if, if it's a little bit rough, it's going to be extremely difficult and potentially dangerous to be working with a 15-foot shark right next to your boat. So it's frustrating, but we, you know, we keep at it. We pick the right days, and you have to be very productive on those days. And those days could be very, very long. You might get lucky in the morning and catch a blue shark, and you can get a tag in it, and you're tired from it. But you have to use that whole rest of the day because research costs a lot of money. And so we have to go out there and make the best of each day, tag as many sharks as possible and learn as much as possible. And I think the other thing that's, that's really beautiful about where I work is the locals are starting to take part in our research. And instead of them going out and you know, catching and killing a mako shark or a thresher shark, they're going out and helping me with my research. So if they do catch a shark, they tell me I go over to their boat and I tag the shark and they release it. So it's kind of, you know, promoting conservation and, and citizen science is something that's really important. You get as many people, you know, involved in your research, as many people as possible aware about sharks, there's going to be more people out there that want to protect them. And that, I think that's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, well, I mean, what, what made that turn? I mean, you said you're starting to see that happen, but you live in a fairly infamous area for shark fishermen. So what, what made that turn and, and made the public want to join in your cause? Well, initially I went to Montauk and I was very shy and I put my head down. I went out on my boat, did my research, came back in and I didn't really, you know, tell too many people what I was doing and what I was trying to achieve. But it wasn't until I actually started speaking up and telling the local commercial fishermen about what I was doing where they got interested and they're like, you know, we want to help you with that. We know some of these really productive spots where we can help you with your research and it was just basically word of mouth and teaching people about the importance of sharks and how at the end of the day, if we have, you know, these large predators in our ecosystem, they have the ability to top down regulate the entire reef. Uh, and at the end of the day, everyone benefits from that. And by teaching them that they wanted to take part in the research and help me out. And I am extremely grateful. That's awesome. Yeah. Another great tool for education for people to learn about sharks I've found is aquariums. And it's, you know, it's one of these conversations I've had many, many times. And honestly, I've been both for and against on both sides. When I was like freshly out of college and I was out in the field and tagging and stuff. And, and I heard about whale sharks going to an aquarium. I blew up and I was, you know, I was actually pretty mad about it. I remember talking to people and saying, this is not a good idea. And I'd give presentations to, uh, uh, where I was working in Honduras um, and I've worked with the government and we're saying we're trying to save these things in the wild, but why are we putting them in an aquarium? I just, I couldn't wrap my head around it. And then I, you know, the, the benefit of age and experience, I guess, I, I started learning a lot more about aquariums. So Madeline, uh, perhaps you could tell people who have like the same type of 
questions or concerns, the benefit of aquariums in shark education. And, and perhaps if there's any cons against it as well, I'd love to hear it, you know? Yeah. Um, so my favorite thing about working at um, aquariums and being part of AZA, so that's the Aquarium Zoo Association, it's this world-renowned like organization that is helping conservation initiatives and taking part in field research so we can take better care of animals that are in our care and then bring that to the public. Like we have, the aquariums have such an important public platform to teach and inspire future conservationists. So I grew up coming to aquariums. I'm from upstate New York, so I didn't grow up around the ocean, but I always knew I wanted to be a marine biologist. And it's from these hands-on experiences um, and educational programs I saw um, at these aquariums growing up and being able to go and, you know, point my finger, you know, at this, you know, tank with these huge animals that I've never seen before and learning about them. Um, so the North Carolina Aquarium is looking at um, sand tiger sharks in the field, but we're, you know, taking ultrasound images and we're doing um, other field work like taking blood samples um, and looking at genetic fin samples and bringing that back um, into the lab and then learning about shark reproduction um, in the fields that can help us with um, our shark populations in the um, aquarium care so that we can actually, so we're not taking from the wild, um, but we're actually, you know, breeding and having, um, we're, we're having, what's the word? Um, we're having our own successful breeding program in aquariums. Is that actually happening now? You're getting births in your aquarium? Um, we have. There are um, some places in the world that have had successful birth of sand tiger sharks. Sand tiger sharks are um, interesting in that this funny thing called intrauterine cannibalism happens. So um, they are, sharks are born live, but they are hatched in the mother's womb. And then they'll actually start eating their brothers and sisters in the womb. So that's something that um, we have to think about. Um, but the best thing to do is to think about every aspect of an animal's welfare and be able to simulate it in the aquarium environment so that we're simulating as much as we can their natural environment. So a happy shark or a happy fish is going to breed on its own and we can just let them, you know, continue, continue their natural life cycle like they would in the wild. Yeah, uh, interuterine catalysm has always been one of my favorite things to teach about because it's, it's, it's gnarly and it's gory, but it's kind of like it, it really exemplifies sharks for me. You know, they're, they're, they're fighting to be the biggest and strongest from basically from inception. I, I've always thought that was so cool. What, what, is the, uh, what is the average sort of litter size for a sand tiger? Um, so a female sand tiger shark actually has two uterine chambers. So she's gonna, she can ultimately give birth to two pups, but it's only one per uterine chamber. So yeah, it's like the biggest and baddest shark in that womb um, is gonna be the one that makes it. So yeah, it's like survival of the fittest in the womb. Like, yeah, ultimate sibling rivalry. So uh, kind of moving offshore again, um, you guys are living in areas that are subject to pretty gnarly weather and you get very warm and very cold currents going through. Craig, I think you can speak to this really well, but 
over the years and your research out there, are you seeing differences in migratory patterns, times of year, et cetera, with you know, global warming and changes to the water? Yeah, it's funny you ask that because this summer was the strangest summer thus far. We had her that showed up in Montauk that was almost 78 to 80 degrees in, in the peak of the summer. Um, and I think what was so fascinating about that is we wound up catching black tips and spinner sharks offshore of Montauk. And I mean, that was the first time I've ever heard of that happening. And so that's a species that you typically see down in Florida and they make their way up to, you know, New Jersey in the summer, but never quite Montauk. Um, and if you think about it too, we're starting to learn that the ranges of some of these other shark species, like the bull shark, it's starting to extend because of, you know, warm water, the, the climate is changing. And so we're seeing this happening right now and, and it's, it's, it's real. It's really changing the movements of these sharks. Uh, are you seeing the opposite happen in the winter where it's like, it's way colder um, or is it just generally over the entire year? Is it just warming up? It, it seems to be warming up in the summer. In the winter, we, we typically don't work out there in Montauk because a lot of the shark species make their way down south. It's very quiet. Um, but I think it's been pretty consistent in the winter, maybe slightly colder. But yeah, the summer, it's been drastically different. I've, I've been working there since 2014, and I've, I've seen a change. Yeah, uh, perhaps a better way to phrase that question would be, is the shark season longer? Is, is there a longer warm period going on right now? Yeah, so essentially because the water temperatures are changing, the shark season is a little bit longer. Um, the white sharks are showing up a little bit earlier in May. Um, and they're passing through Montauk again a little bit later in October. And so initially that was uh, a much smaller shark season, shorter shark season, and now it's changed. But with the thresher sharks, it's still only those two weeks. And for some reason, it's just they show up to the day on that reef, and then they disappear to the day from that reef. It's just incredible. And it's, you know, again, we we determined that it was prey-based, but I, I just find it really strange that you could count on them being there on, on one particular day in August and leaving on one particular day in August. You won't see them there anymore. Wow. So if it is prey-based, is that prey also a targeted fish? Like, are, are we going after them? Are we, ta- are we targeting them for food or bait or whatever else? That's actually a major issue right now and, and was another reason why I wanted to work extensively with these threshers. Um, what they're primarily feeding on at that particular reef is a fish called uh, Atlantic Menhaden or Bunker. Um, and that's a species that's been extensively fished. Um, we started to let the populations recover, right? And so they started showing up and we got these massive schools again off of New York and the thresher sharks would show up and feed on them. But all of a sudden, um, they were looking to um, lighten the commercial fishing uh, regulations so that people could go out and use these massive nets and take the entire school of Menhaden out of the ecosystem. And that's a, a fundamental, I, I find that to be, or I call it the fuel of the Atlantic Ocean, because there's so many different species feeding on this Atlantic Menhaden or bunker. You have whales, you have white sharks, you have blue sharks, you have so many different animals. Um, and so now they started to um, ban the commercial fishing of these bunker once again, which is, I think that's a win for the Atlantic Ocean for the entire eastern seaboard of the United States, because, you know, if you have the prey, you're going to have the predators. Yeah. Um, obviously, you have a, a, a big passion for the thresher sharks. What's your, what's your dream experience with a thresher that you haven't had? I mean, you've been to 
off the coast where you are, you've been to Philippines, you're all over the world looking for these things. What's the ideal experience that you've yet to have? So I absolutely love the thresher. It's such a unique animal and it has a weapon for a tail. Like how cool is that? Um, and I've only seen footage of thresher sharks hunting. Like I've been to the Philippines and I go to the sites where they see the sharks hunting and every time I go, they're never there. And so my ultimate goal is to be in the middle of a bait ball, seeing a thresher shark hunt right in front of my very eyes. I think there wouldn't be anything cooler than that. And so uh, I'm going to have to keep going to the Philippines or maybe I'll get lucky and see it in New York, but the water's murky in New York and the Philippines is beautiful. So I'm going to keep going until I get it. I hope you get it. Uh, Madeline, same question. I mean, uh, your work with sand tigers, what's the ideal experience for you? You've probably already had it. <laughs> yeah, I've had a lot of amazing experience uh, with sand tiger sharks um, off of our wrecks. But yeah, just maybe witnessing a live birth um, off the coast of North Carolina, if that's that's where it's happening. Um, that would just be the coolest thing ever to see. Um, when these sharks are born, they were born three feet in length, top predators, eating machines, ready to go. Um, they're just like born the perfect predator. Um, so it'd just be so cool to see a baby shark. Yeah. Have you ever seen uh, juveniles on the wrecks or do you think they're moving somewhere else away from all the adults? Yeah, we actually have, um, during the summer, we do see mixed sex aggregations and we'll see some juveniles and sub-adults. Um, it is thought that the young of year, so the babies are actually um, migrating extensively up to nursery habitats, um, up Cape Cod um, and also um, the New York Bay. Um, they is a recent uh, nursery that they found, so they actually might be seeking refuge away from the adult population. Um, what's interesting, too, with climate change, I'm interested in, you know, how recent that extent um, has, you know, moved upwards and if that's going to continue to move upwards or not. Um, you know, sand tiger sharks have a pretty extensive range. They're warm, temperate shark species. Um, you know, they hug coastlines and they're attracted to physical features. Um, but I'm interested in, you know, how that might change over time due to climate change. Yeah. Uh, curious, have you ever seen, uh, you know, gut contents of an adult sand tiger and found juveniles? Um, I have not. Um, they are known to be opportunistic and will eat smaller shark species. Um, the sharks that we catch, um, we do try and use um, fresh bait, but they're pretty um, generalist. And sometimes we've actually caught them with like two-year-old freezer-dried flounder. So <laughs> they're not that picky. <laughs> Yeah, it seems that, you know, if you've got the ability to just kind of hang out on a beautiful wreck, you, you know, pretty much all the time and just snap up whatever goes past your mouth, you'd probably get pretty lazy. Yeah, exactly. And that's what they have this really cool um, jaw feature where, you know, it's their jaw, their upper jaw suspended. So they can be hovering on the wreck, you know, with their, you know, flotation device um, that they have. And, um, you know, a schooling fish could be, you know, coming by and that they're their jaws just able to jut out and they might be able to grab a quick snack. So is there any actual uh, inhalation sort of vacuum effect to that jaw jutting? Yeah, they definitely gulp their prey um, pretty quickly. They're just the perfect ambush predator. That's so rad. Well, hey guys, I want to uh, thank you for your time today. Is there anything else you wanted to add while you're here with the Daily Bite? Sharks are cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> sharks are definitely cool. Well, Craig, Madeline, thank you so much for your time today. Everyone at home, that was your Daily Bite. Happy Shark Week.